you sad girl study guides. As always, I'm your host, Amelia, and as always, I'm sad. We're about halfway through the study guides on the Stuarts, which means that it's time to cover everyone's least favorite Stuart king, James II of England. If Charles II is all shots on shots and fun coffee drinks, James II is flat and flavorless bubbly water. In your history class, James II probably wasn't even mentioned, but if you had a cool history teacher, and he was, it most likely was because of his utter inability to please anyone. As a result, his study guide involves me having a lot of opinions, two failed rebellions, a little bit of cross-dressing, religious conflict up to here, and a ton of opium. Let's begin. The boy who would be James II of England is born in St. James Palace on October 14, 1633. He is the second surviving son of Charles I of England and his wife, Henrietta Maria. A year after his duke, James becomes the Duke of York, casual, whatever. James is going to have less opportunity as a child compared to his big brother Charles, thanks to the whole Civil War thing. The Civil War breaks out when James is nine, In the same year that it breaks out, he is sent to the very safe and very royalist city of Oxford. James doesn't spend that long in Oxford. In June 1646, he ends up getting captured by Parliament's forces and goes back to London as a hostage for two years. He ends up managing to escape Parliament in 1648, thanks to disguising himself as a girl, which most likely was much easier for James to do than it was for Charles, because James wasn't as tall and distinctive looking as his big brother. No, I was not able to figure out exactly how tall James was, but I'm willing to say it was under six feet. After escaping from Parliament in 1648, he goes to Holland, where he meets up with Charles and his sister Mary, who is married to William II of Orange. James, much like Charles, is going to stay in Europe during the whole Cromwell being in power in England, and he is not going to have a great relationship with either his brother or his mother. James is much more serious than Charles. He's not quite going to be the playboy sleeping around getting every single noblewoman in Europe pregnant. Yes, he is going to have quite a few affairs, some of which we'll get into later on, but his affairs just aren't as fun as Charles. Like I said, James is the flat bubbly water to Charles's shot of tequila. Also, the execution of Charles I was much more traumatic for James than it was for Charles. Charles II sees his father's death and is like, okay, sad, but it's time for me to take on the mantle of king. James sees his father's death and is like, oh my gosh, if I ever become king, I have to ensure that Parliament never tries to overthrow me, so I'm going to be repressive as fuck, which will lead to a lot of poor life choices. That being said, 
James doesn't spend all of his time in Europe sulking and being angsty. In 1652, he joins the French army and promptly gets a reputation for being an amazing soldier. In fact, James is going to spend quite a bit of his pre-king life serving in various armies. In 1658, he's going to leave the French army because France forms an alliance with Oliver Cromwell and is going to spend a few years serving in the Spanish army. It's around the time that he's serving in the Spanish army that James meets the woman who will eventually become his first wife, Anne Hyde. Anne's father, Edward Hyde, is Charles's main minister and Anne is also his sister Mary's lady-in-waiting. Pretty soon, after they meet, they start sleeping together. The relationship is serious enough that by the winter of 1659, the two have entered into a private marriage contract. And when Charles gets restored to the throne of England in 1660, Anne is visibly pregnant. So James could have just been like, cool, you'll be my mistress, illegitimate children, I'll do what my brother does. But unlike Charles, it seems like James maybe does have a little bit of a moral compass at this point in his life. I mean, he's certainly not going to be faithful to Anne later on, but he is going to marry her in September 1660, which is going to cause quite a bit of controversy because, one, Anne is not considered to be particularly attractive. Everyone's like, look, if the king's little brother wants to marry a mistress, why not marry a hot mistress? Two, her father isn't exactly the most popular. And three, most importantly, Anne is not from a high-ranking noble family or from European royalty. By marrying Anne, James has removed himself from possible marriage negotiations with princesses which kind of puts a damper in potential foreign policy. But there's nothing that anyone can do about it. Anne and James are married. They don't have the happiest marriage because, like I foreshadowed, James is going to continue having mistresses. His two most famous mistresses are Catherine Sudley and a young woman, Arabella Churchill, whose big brother is a guy named John Churchill, who just so happens to be really, really awesome at fighting in the army. James's mistresses have the same reputation as Anne Hyde, that they're not super attractive. And later on, when James publicly becomes Catholic, people are going to say that James purposely chooses hideous mistresses as a weird form of penance. Despite the mistresses and the growing distance between him and Anne, James does manage to have two surviving legitimate daughters. Mary and Anne, both of whom are going to eventually be queens of England. James ends up returning to England with the restoration of his big brother Charles in the summer of 1660. Once Charles is restored to the throne, James officially gets named the Duke of Albany and the High Admiral of the Navy. Unlike previous High Admirals of the Navy, looking at you, George the Duke of Buckingham, Turns out that James is really awesome at the whole administrative thing. He's going to run the Navy during the Second Anglo-Dutch War and win some pretty big victories. He's also going to become very interested and involved in 
colonialization in the Americas. In 1664, England is going to take over New Amsterdam, and it will eventually be named New York after him. Because remember, James is the Duke of York. During this time period, James is getting the reputation for being pretty competent and capable, in contrast to his big brother, who likes to sit back and let other people get their hands dirty. However, some people are noticing that James is a little too interested in that whole concept of divine right of kings, which isn't exactly popular in England anymore. While all this is going on, secretly in 1668, James and his wife Anne Hyde secretly convert to Catholicism. Charles II almost certainly knows about this because he has their two surviving children, Mary and Anne, raised away from their parents, away from court by strict Protestants. As a result of this, both Mary and Anne will remain Protestants for their whole lives. Then in 1671, Anne Hyde dies, most likely of breast cancer. Since James doesn't have a legitimate son yet, and because he's still decently young, I mean, he's only in his 40s, he decides to get remarried. His second wife is Mary of Medina, a Catholic princess. The marriage does not start out great. First of all, we have a classic historical age gap. Mary of Modena is only 15 when they got married, whereas James is 40. His older daughter Mary is closer in age to Mary of Modena than James is. His daughter Mary is 11. So there's only four years difference between his second wife and his older daughter. Then there's the whole fact that Mary of Modena actually doesn't want to get married at all. Her dream in life is to be a nun, and she bursts into tears every time she sees James for the first few weeks of their marriage. She actually has a pretty great relationship with Charles II because Charles II is charming af and is just a great, nice guy. Eventually, James and Mary of Modena to make it work. They are going to have a lot of children, and apparently they do really love each other. Mary of Modena and James are not allowed to spend any time with James's children from his first from his first wife because of the whole Catholic thing, and because Charles II is pretty strict about Mary and Anne being raised as Protestant. Even so, James's marriage to Mary of Modena is extremely unpopular. Rumors start spreading that because she's Catholic, she's secretly the daughter of the Pope. And it's around the time of his marriage to Mary of Modena that James starts to publicly hint that maybe he's not Catholic. Charles declares the Declaration of Indulgences, which would potentially grant some religious toleration to Catholics, although Parliament immediately slaps it down. Yes, James is going to continue going to Church of England services until 1676 or so, but the rumors are out there. Tensions are building up. In response to this, by which I mean 
the rumors about James's religious belief and the new marriage to Mary of Modena, Parliament passes what's known as the Test Act. And in case you forgot what we covered in last week's study guide, the Test Act bans Catholics from holding public office. We also have the Popish Plots, which said that a group of French Catholics and possibly Mary of Modena were plotting to murder Charles II and replace him with James, which then leads to the exclusion bills to try to push James out of the line of succession and replace him with his two Protestant daughters, Mary and Anne. As a result, we have a ton of tension throughout England, and James has to go into exile in Scotland, by which I mean Charles tells James to peace out for a little bit, and James isn't quite an idiot at this point, and he agrees. But James is not going to have a great reception in Scotland, because Scotland is even more worried about Catholics than England is, and James is not going to assuage those fears. Instead, he's going to start his habit of pushing pro-Catholic bills through various parliaments. In 1681, he forces two main bills through the Scottish Parliament. We have the Act of Succession, which says that religion isn't a valid reason to keep someone, aka him, from holding the throne of Scotland. And we have the Test Act that says that people in public offices in Scotland have to sign an oath of allegiance to the Presbyterian, Episcopalian, and Catholic faith. The first two aren't that controversial, but because now government office holders have to swear an oath to Catholicism, a ton of politicians refuse to sign on. As a result, James is able to purge opposition from the Scottish government. This means that when the Scottish Parliament gets recalled, he is able to have there be a Tory majority that's going to support the monarchy, aka himself. And James, as the unofficial leader of the Scottish Parliament, is going to take full advantage of this. He starts remodeling the boroughs, aka the districts of the Scottish Parliament, to give himself an advantage. It's the 17th century version of gerrymandering, and we don't have a Supreme Court in Scotland to say, nah, you can't do that. Although the American Supreme Court apparently thinks gerrymandering is just fine and dandy, so it probably wouldn't even matter. Very quickly, James is showing that he's willing to ignore precedent and the way Parliament's supposed to behave to get what he wants. And what he wants is respect for being a Catholic and for everyone to do what he wants, even if it means bypassing Parliament. While all this is going on down in England, we're continuing to have tension over whether or not James should even be allowed to be King of England. I covered this in more detail in the Charles II episode, but as a recap, eventually Parliament has to give in to Charles and James stays in the line of succession, but no one is that happy about it. Charles II ends up dying in February 1685, and James becomes King of England, aka James II. He does start out with a decent political advantage because 
we don't have any immediate rebellions as soon as he becomes king, which means no one wants to murder him right away. So, big way in James, you go, James. However, even as soon as he becomes king, we do have quite a bit of organized Whig opposition in Parliament. James is going to do his best to stamp out that opposition by once again reorganizing parliamentary boroughs and doing that 17th century gerrymandering, but it's not going to be enough. As a quick little digression, according to some 19th century historians, quite a few people believed that James had poisoned Charles in an attempt to grab the throne, and that's why Charles died. But even I think that's a bit of a sure, Jan. It's almost certain that Charles II died of natural causes because, one, it was the 1680s. Everyone's dying of natural causes. Two, Charles was living it up so hugely. Of course he was going to get gout. And three, we have no hard evidence that James murdered his big brother. The two were really close. And when it comes to murder... I do need some hard evidence. So, as a quick recap of James up until he became king. Much like his brother Charles, James has a happy childhood until the Civil War happens. He gets taken hostage briefly by Parliament, manages to escape, bounces around the continent for a little bit, gets a reputation for being a great soldier, comes back to England in the Restoration, marries Anne Hyde, a commoner, Gasp, the first true people's princess, sorry Princess Di and Kate Middleton, she dies, but not before both her and James become Catholics, which is very scandalous, and James starts isolating everyone because he's a Catholic. Despite Parliament's best attempts, he still manages to become king in 1685. So, let's see how James is going to do as king, and who's going to win. James as a Catholic, or Parliament, which believes in things like common law and precedent. If, as you can tell, I really am objective and neutral in this fight. As king, James has a big idea. And that big idea is that his dad, Charles I, had been executed because he was too weak. James thinks that a good king is strong and will not give in to Parliament. He is an absolutist, and he refuses to listen to opposition. He hates the idea of compromise, and will not compromise with anyone. Spoiler alert, this refusal to compromise is what's going to destroy James, which I think is a really valuable lesson to all of us. Always compromise. James will be coronated in England, but he never actually takes the Scottish coronation oath because he is so unpopular in Scotland thanks to all of his drama up there when Charles was king. Even in his English coronation, James is going to do some stuff that will isolate the English. He has Sancroft, the Archbishop of Canterbury, cut all the Anglican sections from the service which isn't exactly popular. From the get-go in his reign, James makes it very clear that he's going to be increasing protections and tolerations for Catholics in England. He starts letting people go from prison who were imprisoned due to their religious beliefs. 
And he says that it's not Catholics who are the enemy. It's not Anglicans who are the enemy. It's those evil, evil nonconformists, like Puritans and separatists. Guys, I love the Church of England. I'm totally willing to work with the Church of England up to a point, but no compromise. It's my way or the highway. And yes, religious toleration is really important. I do think we need to respect people's religious beliefs. It's just this was not the time or the place to do it and the way James went about it by refusing to compromise with anyone was a really, really bad way. James's initial parliament ends up being surprisingly supportive of him. I mean, I guess using executive pressure to stack the elections to get the results that you want can be a good thing. And just in case Parliament isn't listening to him, James is also going to have a secret council. The most famous member of James's secret council is this priest, Edward Petra on it. Everyone hates Petra. You're going to see a ton of pamphlets and caricatures of Petra in them because Petra is a Catholic priest and everyone thinks he's super slimy and gross and possibly sleeping with Mary of Modena, which probably didn't happen. But still, once a rumor like that starts spreading, it's never going to stop. One of James's first acts as king is punishing those who made his life tricky during his brother's reign. And the main guy who made his life tricky was Titus Oakes, the guy behind the popish plot. He has Titus Oakes imprisoned and then sent from city to city in this weird public display where he gets whipped and tortured in various fun ways. James might not have immediate rebellions when he becomes king, but this doesn't last all that long. In May 1688, the Scottish Earl of Argyll starts a revolt up in Scotland that's centered around Orkney and Glasgow. It dies out pretty quickly, but three weeks later, the Duke of Monmouth, Charles II's oldest illegitimate child, invades England via Lyme Regis. Monmouth had been lying low in the Netherlands with James II's oldest daughter, Mary, and her husband, William. But now he's like, hey, I'm actually the king of England because Charles II was secretly married to my mom, Lucy Walter, and James II stole my throne. As we might remember from the Charles II study guide, Monmouth was a really popular figure in England because he's handsome, he's dashing, and most importantly, he's Protestant. So his invasion should be super popular, right? Wrong. He never really gets popular support. When he lands in Lyme Regis, he only has about 150 people with him. He doesn't have a well-organized campaign, he doesn't have any strategy, and as he starts marching through the English countryside, people don't really join up to fight on his side, which is kind of a big problem when you're trying to unseat the current king of England. As a result, Monmouth and his forces, or what remain of his forces, get defeated at the Battle of Sedgemoor 
a month later. The Battle of Sedgemoor is the last official battle that's fought on English soil. I mean, you could argue that the Battle for Britain is the last battle fought on English soil, but that was technically in the air, and I digress. After Sedgemoor, the Duke of Monmouth is unceremoniously captured on the side of the road where he'd been hiding out in a really bad disguise of a shepherd and eventually executed. His execution is completely botched. It takes the executioner five attempts to cut off his head, but he dies. And with Monmouth's death, we have the ending of the last popular uprising in England. But Monmouth's rebellion is something we should remember for one other reason. It's the first major campaign for John Churchill. In Monmouth's rebellion, Churchill is fighting on James's side, but eventually that will change. In response to Monmouth's rebellion, James starts the Bloody Assizes, led by Judge Jeffreys, to punish people, aka Protestants, who have been on Monmouth's side and who possibly thought about rising up against James. The Bloody Assizes lead to the execution of over 300 people, and around 800 English people are sent to the West Indies to work on plantations as indentured servants, but really more as slaves. In the Bloody Assizes, Judge Jeffreys becomes incredibly unpopular because as he's executing people, he starts cracking jokes, which, haha, but no, your audience, Jeffreys. The Bloody Assizes make people realize that, oh dang, James II maybe isn't going to be the nice, tolerant king that he painted himself as. So much for the tolerant left. Despite the rising concerns over James, Monmouth's rebellion does help him politically. In the immediate aftermath of the rebellion, members of parliament are more willing to be loyal to him. They want to show that they had no part in Monmouth's little drama because, hey, they don't want to be rounded up and killed or sent to the West Indies. As a result of this, James is able to get more direct control over the national army. The idea of having a national standing army is fairly new in England. Remember, Charles II had disbanded the National Army when he first became king to prevent it from seizing power like it had with Oliver Cromwell, and he had only recently brought it back at the end of his reign to deal with foreign conflicts. By the time James becomes king in 1685, the National Army is pretty small. It only has 7,000 men and 1,700 cavalry members in it. James is like, look, militias aren't quite enough to stop rebellions. Monmouth showed us that, so we need a bigger army. And mm, having the army under the control of various local units isn't good. It should be centralized under my control. You know, the army should really be closer to 20,000 men. But we don't have enough Anglicans who are willing to join, so look at that. I guess we will have to start using Catholics as soldiers. And oh my gosh, when you look at that, we don't have enough Anglican army officers. We're going to have to start using Catholics as army officers too, even though that technically goes 
against the Test Act. James starts pushing Parliament to undo that bit of the Test Act so we can have Catholic army officers. But the idea of Catholics being in the army, whether as soldiers or army officers, is super, super scary to the average English guy in the street. So, just like that, James begins eroding the goodwill he had picked up from Mama's rebellion. And it's going to get worse, because that same year, Louis XIV repeals the Edict of Nantes. The Edict of Nantes had given basic rights to French Calvinists, aka the Huguenots. And now that they're taken away, we're going to have Huguenots fleeing from France and going to the Netherlands and England. This influx of religious refugees starts creating fears among the English citizens about what might happen if James is somehow able to undo various protections like the Habeas Corpus Act or if Catholicism somehow becomes England's main religion. James doesn't help matters much because he starts publicly saying that he doesn't want Huguenots staying in England and he starts having the new larger army train right outside London. This new larger army has a ton of Catholic recruits and London citizenship is like, oh no, is James trying to hint something at us? Is he saying that if we don't back down about the Huguenots, we're going to be taken over by Catholics? Oh my gosh, panic time. Parliament isn't just going to sit back and let James do all this. They start speaking out pretty strongly about the fact that James is technically violating the Test Act by allowing Catholics to be army officers. James responds in a very mature way by being all, fuck you, you're not meeting again until next year. And spoiler alert, Parliament is never going to meet again during James's reign. James is just going to keep putting off and putting off and putting off when he's going to recall Parliament. As a result, Parliament spends a total of 11 days in session for all of James's reign. I think that might be a record for fewest days in session for Parliament, at least for kings who had a Parliament. Once Parliament is gone, James is going to start doing his own thing. And oh boy, is he going to do his own thing. He makes it illegal to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day because a major part of traditional Guy Fawkes celebration is burning effigies of the Pope. He starts publicly letting Catholics join his Privy Council, and he allows various Catholic religious orders set up shop in the center of London. So what exactly was James's goal? Was he a second Mary I? Did he want to force everyone to convert to Catholicism or get burnt at the stake? No, not quite. He's never going to be quite so extreme, thank goodness. Instead, James Moore just wants Catholicism to be on an equal footing with Anglicanism in England. And he's going to do that by creating a system where being a Catholic is going to help people get ahead, both socially and politically. So there are going to be a lot of incentives to join, so people will organically 
convert. Except it's not going to quite work out that way because the English citizenship are going to realize that they're going to, that they're being bribed and they don't exactly love that. In 1686, a year into James's reign, he's going to face his first real political challenge to this plan. The governor of Dover, Edward Hales, who is Catholic, gets sued by his servant for being Catholic and thus violating the Test Act. In the resulting court case, Gooden v. Hales, James does win. The courts say that James is allowed to ignore the Test Act for certain government positions, but the court only says this after James had dismissed all the judges who were going to disagree with him. I mean, that's certainly one way to win an argument. James quickly continues doing this. He puts a Catholic commander in charge of Ireland. He replaces the Admiral of the Navy with a Catholic, etc., etc. Very quickly, across the government, Catholics are starting to gain power. But instead of this making lawyers and judges and other people with political aspirations widely convert to Catholicism, we see a bit of a backlash. People see what's going on and they're like, that's not fair. Why should I give up my honestly held religious beliefs, which have been the beliefs of this country for over a hundred years in order to get a cushy gig. That same year, James is going to start a new court to deal with religious issues in the country. And yes, this new special court of commissioners for ecclesiastical causes, quite a mouthful, is technically illegal according to a previous law, but James is going to ignore that. James is awesome at ignoring laws that don't help him. This new court is going to be in charge of preventing indiscreet preaching, aka helping Catholicism by allowing James to kick out clergy that disagree with him and regulate universities. At the beginning, the commission seems somewhat fair and balanced, much like Fox News seemed legit at the beginning. After all, the commission starts out by working with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Sancroft, who is an Anglican, but pretty quickly he's pushed to resign from the commission. And then the commission tells Henry Compton, the Bishop of London, who is publicly anti-Catholic, that he is not allowed on the Privy Council. Thanks to the commission, James's Privy Council is soon purged of anti-Catholics. James also, thanks to the commission, is going to be able to interfere at Oxford and Cambridge, aka England's main university. He starts kicking out chancellors who refuse to accept Catholics. And yes, universities should accept people regardless of their religious beliefs, but kicking out chancellors is not the way to do it. And then in 1687, James is going to get even more controversially involved. The College of Maudlin at Oxford needs a new president. The old president has died. James first suggests a pro-Catholic candidate who is woefully underqualified. 
for a variety of reasons, the university says no and suggests someone else who you know has actual qualifications. James is like, screw you guys. No, we're going to have a Catholic president and immediately dismisses everyone at Maudlin who had voted for the second candidate and turns Maudlin into a puppet Catholic college. James has now isolated one of the biggest universities in England. So all the college students hate him. And when college students hate you, you've screwed up. Because as a former college student, we're a notoriously apathetic bunch. And on top of this, riots start breaking out against Catholics in major cities. So clearly, James's plan of organic conversion through bribery is not working. James is like, okay, fine. I have an idea to stop these riots and get everyone to love me for the first time in my life. The April 1687 Declaration of Indulgences. The 1687 Declaration of Indulgences goes further than any religious toleration law in England has gone before. It gives people full religious liberty in public and no tests for religious offices. I'm not totally sure exactly how many groups it gave full religious liberty to. I know it covered um, non-Anglican Protestants, Catholics, and I'm pretty sure it covered Jewish people. I don't know if it covered Muslims, and I don't really think it covered Buddhists or Hindus because I'm pretty sure there wasn't a huge population of either group in England. If anyone knows more on that topic, please let me know because I'm really curious. In the Declaration of Indulgences, James says that despite this new wave of toleration, the Church of England will still be maintained. It just might not be the supreme church of the land. However, this wildly alienates Anglicans. Surprise, surprise. But it also doesn't win over dissenting non-Anglican Protestants. This shouldn't have come as a huge shock. After all, after all, groups like Puritans and Separatists are never going to be okay with Catholics, but somehow James thought that they would suddenly love him. So suddenly, James has isolated the religious majority of England. But James isn't done yet. He says that he's going to recall Parliament to repeal the Test Act once and for all. He starts dismissing local politicians who have publicly opposed repealing the Test Act. He's made it clear that if you don't like him, and if you're not going to roll over and do what he wants, he's going to get rid of you. And he starts making it pretty obvious that he's going to pack Parliament in such a way that they're going to do whatever he wants, no matter what the majority of the English people believe in. It's not great. And things are going to get even more heated. Remember what I said about the fact that James only has two legitimate heirs? His daughters, Mary and Anne, who are both very Protestant and both very married. Mary, his older daughter, is married to James's nephew, William of Orange, the new Protestant protector of England, who's 
we will be chatting about in a lot of detail next week because they are my two absolute faves and Anne is married to the Protestant George of Denmark. Well, for the last 15 years, James and his second wife, Mary of Modena, have been attempting to have a child with no success. By then, suddenly, in the winter of 1688, Mary of Modena gets pregnant. And this time, the pregnancy sticks. We don't have a miscarriage. It looks like Mary of Modena might give birth to a living child for the first time in her marriage. She and James are thrilled. James forces public prayers for the health of both Mary of Modena and the future child in London, but most of London's population say fuck no to that. Pretty quickly, rumors start spreading through London and the English countryside that Mary was having an affair with James's main advisor, Edward Petre, the Catholic priest. James, however, thinks that this pregnancy is a sign from God because Mary had conceived right after James had swum in a famous holy well in Wales and had asked for the Pope's representative to give both him and Mary a Catholic blessing, which had been a whole other scandal. In May 1688, when Mary is extremely pregnant, James publicly reaffirms the Declaration of Indulgences, which is super unpopular, and he orders all the bishops of the England Church to read the Declaration aloud in their churches. The bishops are like, no, 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 we are not doing this. Seven bishops, including William Sancroft, the Archbishop of Canterbury, write James a petition asking him to reconsider this request. The petition is widely circulated, and the majority of English churches refuse to read the Declaration aloud. In fact, only about 2% of English churches end up reading it aloud, and when it's read aloud in major London churches, people straight up walk out instead of having to listen to it. James is furious. He has the seven bishops arrested for sedition and libel and sent to the tower to await their trial. Five days before the bishops' trial, on June 10th, 1688, Mary of Modena gives birth. She gives birth to a healthy baby boy, and immediately drama and rumors ensue. People start saying that Mary of Modena gave birth to a dead child, and a live child was secretly smuggled in to the queen's chamber via a bedpan, and James's younger daughter, Anne, helped spread a lot of these rumors because she oh-so-conveniently was absent from London during the queen's pregnancy because Anne, as we will see later on, is a messy bitch who lives for the drama. A lot of the drama and gossip and angst about the birth of this baby boy is because everyone knows that James's son with Mary of Modena will be Catholic. And because James now has a Catholic son, this means that James's policies will be continued even after his death and that now England might have a possible Catholic dynasty of kings. 
so everyone is going to freak the fuck out. Five days after James' son is born, the seven bishops are put on trial. Almost immediately, they get acquitted, and when news of their acquittal is announced, the people of London rejoice. We see bonfires, people set effigies of both the Pope and the newborn prince on fire. James is so unpopular at this point that members of the English army who are stationed in London start celebrating and rioting in happiness when they hear the news. James's position is starting to look pretty fucking shaky. And it's going to get even shakier because about two weeks later, on June 30th, 1688, the immortal seven the Earl of Shrewsbury, the Earl of Devonshire, the Earl of Danby, Viscount Lumley, Edward Russell, Henry Sidney, and Henry Compton, the Bishop of London, all send William of Orange, Mary James's daughter's husband, and the Protestant protector of Europe, a letter. In this letter, the Immortal Seven say that the majority of people in England are fed up with James and would like a change Thank you very much. In this letter, the seven make it very clear that they're not asking for a full-on overthrow of James. Instead, they're just asking William to force James to call a free parliament, to force James to follow the rules of this parliament, and then to have William head back to the Netherlands. William is in a bit of a tricky place. He can't exactly piss off James, and by extension, Louis XIV of France, but he also would like England to stay Protestant. The letter from the Immortal Seven shows that William would have a ton of support from the major noble families and political leaders of England if he so chose to get involved. Also by now, it's pretty clear that the English army doesn't necessarily support James thanks to the whole army celebration after the bishops had been freed, and because Anne, James's younger daughter, is BFFs with John Churchill, the army's main general, his wife, and Anne is no longer the biggest fan of her dad. And lastly, we have the fact that both William and Mary have very valid claims to the English throne in their own rights. Before the birth of James's son, Mary was first in line to the throne, and William was third in line to the throne. The letter from the Immortal Seven gives them the support they need to invade to secure a free parliament. Soon after this letter, both Spain and the Pope promise William and Mary that they won't interfere as long as William and Mary don't, like, slaughter English Catholics en masse. So, it looks like we're going to have a jaunty little Dutch invasion, which I will talk about at much more length in the William and Mary study guide, I promise. James knows that this invasion is coming. It's just a matter of when. So he turns to the age-old friend of the Stuarts, Louis XIV, and asks for military and naval and financial support in case of the Dutch invasion. However, Louis XIV is spread pretty thin in terms of military because Louis has made the genius decision to invade the Palatinate, and Louis is like, sorry cousin, 
can't help against the Dutch. The Dutch have already defeated me. No can do. Also, it's a little unclear if James actually thought that William and Mary would follow through with a full-scale invasion. He's sending Mary these super guilt-trippy letters throughout the summer and fall of 1688, being like, you wouldn't hurt your poor old dad, would you? Would you? Would you? And James is going to try to do everything to prevent this invasion, but it's too little too late. He even promises to recall Parliament. He tells the members of Parliament that all he wants is a teeny tiny law allowing freedom of religion in England, and if he gets this, he will ban Catholics from sitting in the House of Commons. However, he doesn't say anything about letting Catholics sit in the House of Lords, but once again, too little, too late. In November 1688, William leaves Holland, and William has a giant fleet because you don't fight the Dutch at sea. He ends up landing at England on November 5th. When he first lands, William doesn't have any supporters waiting for him. We have a brief moment of panic, but then it turns out that his supporters just thought he was going to land somewhere else, and they quickly join him. Pretty quickly, Oxford University in various English cities join up with him, as well as army officers, including John Churchill. Then Princess Anne defects to William's side which is a huge blow to James. If your own daughter won't stand up for you, who will? About a month after William lands in England, on December 9th, James sends his infant son and wife to safety in France. Two days later, he flees, and as he's leaving, he throws the Sea of England into the Thames. James does this because he believes that without the seal of England, William and Mary won't be able to pass any laws. But don't worry, they're going to manage to figure it out. James is so incompetent that he can't even manage to flee properly. He ends up getting captured by William's troops. And William is like, seriously, my dude, I don't want you as a hostage. Just go to France already. And he does make it to France by the end of December. By the time James makes it to France, he is a complete wreck. He is suffering from near constant nosebleeds and is so on edge that he needs heavy doses of opiates to get to sleep. James might be done being King of England, but he's not done with his life yet. He spends a year stewing in France at Saint-Germain en Laye, and then in 1689, he goes to Ireland because Ireland is the one place in the British Isles that still recognizes him as king. In Ireland, he passes a freedom of religion law and tries to use it as a jumping off point to invade England and reseize the throne. It completely fails. He loses big time to William at the Battle of the Boyne on July 1st. 1690. During the battle, James ends up fleeing to France for good, which gets him the lovely nickname in Ireland of Shamus Ashaka, or James the Shit, because that's what happens when you're 
a coward. The Battle of the Boyne is really James's last stand. It's a huge win for William. So in that way, it's really exciting. But on a less happy note, it is used even to this day by Northern Irish Protestants as a way of stirring up religious tensions. So that's not good. Do better. I don't think William would be very proud of you. Even despite the unfortunate nickname that James has in Ireland, Ireland is going to stay a hotbed of Jacobinism. There are going to be multiple attempts to have Jacobite, Jacobite plots start in Ireland. Ireland is going to continue to recognize the claim of James and his children to the English throne for quite a while. After 1690, James won't leave France. He and Mary of Modena will have a second child, a daughter, in France in 1692, and he and his family will live in the court of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, like I said. At some point, Louis XIV will offer James the throne of Poland because, for reasons, Louis XIV has control of Poland because welcome to be in Louis XIV, but James turns it down. He doesn't want to give up the claim of his son to the English throne. For the rest of his life, James will be plotting ways for his son, James Edward Stuart, to regain the throne, and he will keep giving him advice on how to invade and get the throne and create a Catholic England with some toleration for Anglicans. Spoiler alert, that never happens. James ends up dying of a brain bleed in France on September 16th, 1701. His body isn't actually buried in one part, in one place, for reasons that I don't fully understand. It ends up getting embalmed, and then various pieces are sent to various Catholic churches all over France because that's exactly what you want to have done to your body after your death when you're a king. So, James II. As a quick recap for those listeners who prefer bullet points, James had a happy childhood until the Civil War. After being a hostage briefly, he bounces around Europe. He comes back to England with his brother in the Restoration of 1660. He distinguishes himself as a leader of the Navy, but then isolates everyone by becoming a Catholic. After Charles dies with no legitimate heirs, James becomes King of England. The fact that James is a Catholic and wants more people to become Catholic and is unwilling to listen to Parliament isolates him from everyone. It gets so bad that when Mary of Modena, his second wife, gives birth to a surviving child, no one celebrates. Instead, his nephew-slash-son-in-law, William of Orange, invades and James is forced to flee to France. James makes one attempt to reinvade England via Ireland, but it completely fails, and he dies in exile in France. The next study guide will be about James's daughter, Mary, and her husband, William, aka the first co-rulers of England, and my trash problematic faves, William and Mary. The podcast, as always, has social media. You can check us out on Twitter at SadGirlStudyPod. You can check out the Instagram for some fun, dank memes at SadGirlStudy. And we have a Patreon 
where you can access bi-monthly tangent casts at Sad Girl Study Guides. As always, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you find your podcasts or routes. All be sad. Thank you.